0: Some of you will recognize the name Kate Middleton. She is uh, a princess now. She married uh, Prince Harry, and he is in line to be king of England one day. What you may not know is that when Kate Middleton was 13 years old, I recently heard a a British pastor tell this story. When she was 13 years old, her parents sent her to a school that was... um, it was a, it was a girls' school, and the girls at that school were not nice people. They were not nice young ladies, and um, in fact, it was probably Kate Middleton's experience at that school that led her to initiate a program against bullying when she became, when she, after her uh, marriage, um, the the once she once she married Prince Harry. Uh, the reporters, you know, being who they are, doing what they do, they dug around in her history, and they found out that she survived. At, when she was 13, she was sent to this school. And those of us who are older, we can think back to all the changes that were happening to our emotions and to our bodies when we were that age. She was sent to this school. She lasted a term and a half. And they, they interviewed classmates, and, and she had classmates who, one of them said, she was regarded by our peer group, as a non-entity. Not only are they not very nice, they're not very smart, are they? <laughs> if, if they had known, this girl is going to be queen, our queen, one day. And if, if, if we're friends with her, then we will have access to the palace. But no, they didn't know that. And they bullied her, and they mocked her. And another one of her classmates uh, reported that there was a day that she recalled um, passing through a hallway and finding Kate Middleton seated on some stairs, just weeping her eyes out. And then this British pastor said these words. Imagine if you could have shown her, 13-year-old girl crying her eyes out because these nasty classmates of hers are, are picking on her so viciously. Imagine if you could have shown her a picture of her wedding day. Millions of people in the streets of London a balcony at buckingham palace as she marries the royal prince marries the royal prince and and more important than the wealth and the status and the royalty and the fame and all of this he loves her he cherishes her he is a husband to her and he welcomes her into his family imagine imagine the impact that photograph of of this glorious bride in her wedding gown on this glorious wedding day with a nation celebrating, that 13-year-old girl would hardly believe it could be true. When we come to a text like Psalm 45, our problem is that we can hardly believe it's true. It is this good. It is this good and better. As, as, as you try to envision in your mind's eye what this psalmist is going to describe, you should let your imagination run wild. You will you will not overdo it. You will you will probably fail to do it justice. Uh, this psalm. Is strategically placed. We we talked in Sunday school about how Psalm 110 is strategically placed. This one is strategically placed also. And before we look into Psalm 45, I want to tell you briefly about the preceding psalms. So you you, you're probably familiar with the fact that there is this refrain in Psalms 42 and 43. You see it in verse five of Psalm 42, where this psalmist and and you note the superscription of Psalm 42. It's it's addressed to the choirmaster, and it's a mosqueal of the sons of Korah. And, and the sons of Korah, they were these guys, these Levites, who were put in charge of the worship of God at the house of God after David brought the ark into, into Jerusalem, which we read about in 2 Samuel 6. So in David's history, David's life, he struggled through uh, persecution from Saul, Saul trying to kill him. He finally becomes king, and then he establishes these guys uh, to lead the praise of God at, that, at the tabernacle-like structure. David wanted to build a temple but was not permitted to do so at this tabernacle-like structure in Jerusalem. And one of these guys, some, one of these sons of Korah, he, he writes these psalms. And, and all of these psalms, 42 through 49, are all psalms of the sons of Korah. And look at what he says in five. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. If we, were to, if we had time to work through Psalm 42, we would see that this guy has been removed from Jerusalem. He's out of Jerusalem and he's down about it. And, and you know, sometimes knowing the right answer, it helps, right? Why are you cast down? Hope in God. It helps to know that. But sometimes we have to stay at it, don't we? And I think that need to stay at it is reflected in the fact that this is repeated. Look at verse 11. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. I wonder if you can identify with this psalmist. I'm suggesting to you that the reason this psalmist keeps repeating these words is because he knows they're the right answer and it doesn't feel like it's working. He knows he needs to hope in God, but his circumstances aren't being changed. So he's crying out in in Psalm 43, asking the Lord to vindicate him and defend him. And then look at verse 5 of Psalm 43. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. So this psalmist, he, he, his circumstances are not what he wants them to be, and he's, he's urging himself to hope in God. And then in Psalm 44, it's, it's kind of more of the same, only it's extended out from the individual le- level to, to, we might say, the congregational level, where this remnant of people who love the Lord are all now crying out. And, and they're saying, for instance, look at verse 17 of Psalm 44, All this has come upon us, though we have not forgotten you. And we have not been false to your covenant. So these are people that are trying to walk with God. They're trying to be true to the Lord. And yet, look at verse 25 of Psalm 44. Our soul is bowed down to the dust. Very similar language to the soul being cast down from 42 and 43. Our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our belly clings to the ground. And then there's this cry in verse 26. Rise up. Come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. Now, before we go on, I, I, I want to say a word about how, this, how, how we can appropriate these words and use them in our spiritual lives. I, I think that you should, you should use these prayers in your own personal walk with God. We, we None of us hopes in God like we should. And we should urge ourselves to hope in God, for we shall again praise Him. We should discipline ourselves in these realities, individually, personally. I heard a story, in fact, a, a dear friend of mine who, who's a pastor in the Louisville area, he told me this story about how uh, there's, a, there's a family in his, in his congregation, and um, they have some property, and so they have a tractor, and, and the, the husband is a lineman. He works up on power lines. And so this mother, she's always been aware of the fact that, that her husband could die. It's a very dangerous job. You know, thousands of watts of electricity that he's up in an, in an elevated place working on all the time. And, and so over the years, she has disciplined herself. This, these were her words. She, she said to my friend, she said, I have disciplined myself in the goodness of God. Meaning, I have affirmed and affirmed and affirmed to myself that God is good so that if ever something happens to my husband, I will, I will not question the goodness of God. And then this woman has inculcated into the lives of her children. We are not going to question God's goodness. This is part of, part of their family life. We, we are not going to question the goodness of of god individually we should do this kind of thing and then when we look at at, at at our at our church you know it's so encouraging to see a room like this that's full of people earnest for the bible but we're a small fraction aren't we of the wider society and there are so many people that are they're seeking what can only be found in knowing god they, they've got this infinite yearning within them that will only be satisfied by knowing the infinite God. And we do everything that we can. We plead with them. We tell them, we love you. We're for you. We want you to know satisfaction. And they respond to us the way that my father-in-law recently responded to me. My father-in-law is not walking with the Lord. And I've been married to my wife for 20 years now. And for 20 years, we have been trying to make progress with him, sharing the gospel with him. And early on, there was a, a time at dinner when when um, a, a, a window opened and I said to him, do you ever think about what happens at the end of life? And he immediately shut it down. He said, I am not interested in entering into a spiritual conversation with you and Jill. And and my wife was there and she just redirected the conversation and we just went right on loving him and trying to celebrate him and trying to build a strong relationship with him. And that's borne fruit over the years and over the years as Crazy things like terrorist attacks have happened. He's asked me about religion. And he's asked me about the difference between Islam and Christianity. And so he's heard the gospel a lot from me. And recently we were in their home and, and we were having one of these conversations. And I said to him, you know what I want for you. I want you to find your joy and satisfaction in knowing God. You were made to know God. And, and I want you to have the fullness of joy that can only come... By faith in Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, knowing God. That's what I want for you. And he goes, I know you do. <laughs> and then he went on about his business. We, we long for these people to come. We want them to know this satisfaction. And it sometimes feels like we're so unsuccessful. And it's, it can be easy to get discouraged. And that brings us to Psalm 45. The resolution to this psalmist's cast-down soul comes in Psalm 45. The superscription tells us this is addressed to the choir master. And then it says, according to the lilies. And you know, in the poetry of the Bible, there are only a few places where you read about lilies. One of those places is a song of songs. You know, there's this line, uh, my beloved is like a, a, a young stag or a gazelle. He grazes among the lilies, this kind of language. And then you have that... that Song of Songs is a wedding song. And then you have this psalm, which is a wedding psalm. And there's this mention of these lilies. I think it's a a kind of connection between uh, Psalm 45 and and Song of Songs. And then it's called a maskele. That word maskele, that's a Hebrew word. And um, it it has to do with causing wisdom. So I I think we can say this psalm is intended to cause wisdom. Look at verse one. The psalmist says, My heart overflows with a pleasing theme. This this language of his heart overflowing, it's like a pot that has been put over a fire, and it's been heated up until the water is boiling, and now it's overflowing the pot. That's, that's the image here. His heart is overflowing with a pleasing theme. How did this happen? I would suggest to you that this happened as a result of meditation on the Scripture. The pleasing theme that this guy is meditating on is the promise from Genesis 3.15 that God would raise up a Redeemer. A promise that's elaborated on in Genesis 12.1-3 when God promises blessing to Abraham. And then it's further elaborated on with, with promises regarding Judah in Genesis 49 and then to David in 2 Samuel 7. And this psalmist is meditating on this king that's been promised from the line of David and he's praying and he's meditating on Scripture and he's thinking about what's going to happen when this king reigns. And his heart begins to overflow. And he and he begins to, to feel hope in God. And he begins to praise God. So that the, the downcast in soul in 42 and 43, the bowed down in soul in 44 is now overflowing in heart in 45, 1. My heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. Ezra is called a ready scribe in the Bible. This is a guy who knows the Scriptures. He has, he has written the, the, law, the Word of God on his heart, and as a result, when he's down, the Bible starts talking to him. It's like that line in Isaiah, when Isaiah says, uh, you will hear a voice behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. In response to this verse, I, I want to I challenge you, encourage you, dare you to memorize the Bible. There's, a, there's an, an elder at our church, a guy, a, a, I won't tell you his name, I won't steal his reward, but this guy was a member of a church that was visited by John Piper. It was Ray Ortland's church in, in uh, Nashville. John Piper came and preached, and John Piper challenged the whole congregation to memorize Romans 8. He preached on Romans 8 that day, your pastor's preaching on Romans 8. Um... I don't know. I think memorizing Romans 8 would be a good thing for you to do. Maybe you could try it. This, this guy who's now an elder in our church, when he became an elder, he gave his testimony. And he, he, said, he said, Ray Ortland Ray brought John Piper in. John Piper preached. He challenged all of us to memorize Romans 8. He said, I set out to do it. He said, as I would drive around in my car, I would just rehearse the verses. As I would walk across campus, I would rehearse the verses. Every spare moment I had, I began to, to go over and over the scriptures. And he was like, it was amazing what happened to me. All of a sudden, my perspective started to change. My attitude started to change. The way that I talked to my wife started to change. What I wanted to do in my free time started. Everything about my life changed. It, the guy got transformed. After I heard him share this testimony, I challenged our church. I, first, I challenged my sons. I challenged my sons to, to memorize Romans 8. I think it was partly through that, that my 10-year-old professed faith in Christ. Um, I challenged our church to do it. I don't know how many of them have done it. We need a progress report, probably. Uh, I'm still chipping away at it myself. Listen, I don't care how long it takes. Stay after it. You, you will not regret memorizing the Bible. And, and let's just get real practical. Here's what you do. You take a phrase, like this phrase, my heart overflows with a pleasing theme. Read it 10 times. Looking at the, page, at the line. My heart overflows with a pleasing thing. My heart overflows with, overflows with a pleasing thing. Say it in the same, at the same rate, with the same emphasis ten times. Then look up and say it without looking at it ten times. And then come back at the end of the day and, and review and rehearse. Do, it the same, do the next phrase tomorrow. You'll be surprised at how much Scripture you can memorize. And you will not regret a line of it. So he's addressing these verses to the king. Verses 1 through 5, by the way, he's going to celebrate the king's conquest. Verse 2, he's going to start talking about this king. He says, you are the most handsome of the sons of men. Why is this significant? This is significant because this psalmist is talking about the hope of the world. He's not talking about someone who's merely pretty. You know, uh, Saul, he was, he was uh, the most impressive young man in Israel. David was ruddy and handsome. But this is someone, this king, is someone who is attractive for all the right reasons. And when this king conquers, when this king reigns, all injustice is going to be defeated. All righteousness is going to be brought into reality. And, and injustice is, is bad because it, it harms people. It's wicked. Righteousness is good because it's good for people. So this guy's longing for the reign of the king because when the king reigns, everything is going to be made right. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Um, this literally says, you are the most handsome of the sons of Adam. This guy is saying, you are the best S- descendant of Adam who has ever lived. And that's true of Jesus. The great thing about being a Christian is that we don't have to... I, mean, I know there are Christian leaders who disappoint us. Christian leaders, human beings fail all the time. I could, name, I, could, I could name a handful that have fallen morally in the last six months. That's devastating. It's awful. Jesus will never fail us. Jesus will never fail. Fail us. And anytime we're interacting with someone who's, who's jaded or, or discouraged about Christian leaders, you know, all we have to say is, look, it's, it's the righteousness of Jesus that upholds the standard, right? It, it's the, we get this idea of what's right and wrong from Jesus. So we, we shouldn't go away from Jesus because Jesus' people fail to live up to Jesus' goodness. Jesus is still good. He will never disappoint us. Verse two, you are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God your God has blessed you forever. Grace is poured upon your lips. I, I don't know if you have this experience sometimes um, listening to someone sing, or I, I was thinking about this recently when I heard um, a lacrae song. The guy just has this melodious way of speaking. It's it's attractive. It's like it it's it's mesmerizing the way that he says words. I think you could probably say it's about Eminem too. Maybe we're not supposed to talk about him. Sorry for mentioning him. But but it, it's this catchy and and attractive way of speaking, and what's being said about the future king from David's line here. Grace is poured upon your lips. Not only is it attractive and mesmerizing, but also this is God's grace that is communicated from His lips. There's a power in His words. Jesus says in John 6, 63, He says these words. He says, The flesh profits nothing. My words are spirit and life. I think what Jesus is saying is people that hear my word, they they experience new life by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's grace operating out of his lips. Grace is poured upon your lips, therefore God has blessed you forever. God has blessed you forever. What does this make it make you think of in the Bible? Genesis twelve three is what it makes me think of. Maybe it's twelve two. It's twelve one through three. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. God has blessed you forever. Jesus is the descendant of Abraham through the line of Judah, through the line of David. And he is the one who's going to bring to pass the blessing of Abraham. And so now the the psalmist starts to cheer the king on in verse 3. He says, gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor. And majesty. In your majesty, ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. I was listening the other day to this biography of Lyndon B. Johnson, and the author was setting the context of uh, the civil rights uh, legislation that Johnson uh, brought to bear, and he was talking about those African Americans in the South, the Deep South who staged these sit-ins where they went to the counters and they, and they sat on those stools and they refused to yield their place. And he was talking about how um, the, the, the people, the, the white people, uh, the racists who were trying to remove them, first they squirted ketchup and mustard on them and then they began to spit upon them and then they began to drag them out and then they turned the hoses on them and then they turned the dogs loose on them and then they began to beat them with the billy clubs. That's wickedness. That's wickedness. And there will be nothing like that when Jesus reigns. That's what, Jesus, that's what the psalmist is talking about when he says, In your majesty, ride out victoriously. Ride out victoriously to crush all oppressors. Ride out victoriously to defeat all wicked rulers like Hitler. Wicked people who, who do awful things in the world. In your majesty, ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness it's amazing it's amazing that this psalmist is saying gird your sword on your thigh and ride out for the cause of meekness Jesus is going to wield a killing conquering sword in meekness it's amazing he he's going to come in power defeating all his enemies in meekness with perfect humility it's amazing How he can do this. Let your right hand, verse 4, teach you awesome deeds. Verse 5, your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. You know, if you're here this morning and you're an unbeliever, you need to hear this clearly. Because if you're here this morning and you're refusing to submit to King Jesus, We're not saying submit to us. Don't submit to me. Don't submit to the pastor here. Don't submit to the members. Submit to Jesus. Okay? Now, there may be a sense in which submitting to Jesus does need to look like submitting to the pastor or submitting to other elders here, submitting to the the decisions of the church, that sort of thing. But ultimately, you're submitting to Jesus. Okay? If you're an unbeliever and you're refusing to, to submit to Jesus, do you know what you're saying? You're saying... I want him to unleash that sword on me. And, and really what you're saying is something like this. I don't think he's going to do it. I don't think he's going to do it. Maybe you're saying you don't think he's there. And and what we're, what we're saying to you this morning, if you're here and you're an unbeliever, is you have the opportunity to turn from that attitude. You know, for thousands of years, this psalm, Uh, was written probably right at the time when David was enthroned as king in, in Israel, 1,000 B.C. For thousands of years, people have been hoping in this. You know why? Because for thousands of years, the Spirit of God has been convincing people. And our prayer is that the Spirit of God will convince you by these words this morning and that you will realize, I'm in danger. I'm in danger of the true king of Israel. But if I will turn from my rebellion against him... And if I'll bow the knee before him and swear fealty to him as my Lord and trust him as my Savior, he will make it so that I'm no longer an enemy. I'm a friend. That's the good news. You can go from being one of the, the, the enemies who's going to fall under him to one who is celebrating his glory and greatness and goodness and meekness and righteousness. And we hope you will. There's nothing we would, we would like to see more today than for you to turn and follow Christ. Verses 1 through 5, we have the king's conquest. It is certain. It's going to happen. God has promised it. The God who made the world raised Jesus from the dead. Jesus is coming back. And he's going to conquer. No one will stand against him. Now in verses 6 through 8, we get a celebration. 6 through 8 or 9, we get a celebration of the king's throne. Notice how the, the psalmist has been addressing the king from verse 2 on. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Verse 3, gird your sword. Verse 4, in your majesty. Verse 5, your arrows are sharp. He doesn't turn from talking to the king to talking to God in verse 6 when he says, your throne, O God. He's addressing the king as God, what does this mean? Um, I think it means at least this. There's a close identification between the God of Israel and the King of Israel. Just as there was a close identification between God who made the world and Adam made in God's image and likeness. Okay? I'm, I'm, I'm willing to affirm that wholeheartedly. What I'm uncertain about is whether the psalmist understood say in the way we understand that when the future king from David's line came he would be the incarnation of God i'm i'm uncertain whether or not the psalmist had a full grasp of that and part of the reason is because even those who were following Jesus you know you think of Jesus disciples these are guys that believe the old testament they know psalm 45 they know isaiah 9:6 but they get on a boat with Jesus and the storm starts raging and he calms the winds and the waves? Do you remember how they responded? If they had a fully, fully developed conception that when the, when the Messiah came, he was going to be the incarnation of God, I would expect them to say, naturally, this is what we've been expecting. We've been expecting the Messiah who would come as God in the flesh. That's not what they say. It's like they have to get their heads around this. It's like this is a new development from merely... God and Adam in the image and likeness of God, God and the king of Israel being identified with God, to now this king of Israel we've been waiting for is actually the word made flesh, God in the flesh. So they say, who then is this that even the winds and the waves obey them? So I think we've got a progress of revelation, but, but what's said here fits with that progress, and we can wholeheartedly affirm, as the author of Hebrews does, That this applies fully to Jesus. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. This scepter, we we saw this in Psalm 110 earlier this morning. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Uh, Psalm 2. You will rule them with a rod of iron. Genesis 49. The scepter shall not depart from... uh, between uh, judah's feet the scepter of your kingdom psalm 45 verse 6 is a scepter of uprightness you know it's interesting how um in american history at the time of the revolution revolutionary war against great britain uh, there was this this hatred of the monarchy and and the most insulting thing that you could say about george washington was that he was a monarchist and, and so Thomas Jefferson and uh, Alexander Hamilton, they hated each other. And, and the way that Jefferson tried to run Hamilton down in the eyes of other people was he, he spread the rumor that Hamilton was secretly trying to make George Washington king. Why were they so against monarchy? Because they'd seen how wicked people can't handle power. They, they had seen how human beings are all sinners. Nobody deserves that kind of... Divine right of kings. Nobody except Jesus. Nobody except Jesus. And the reason is right there in verse 6. Because the scepter of His kingdom is not a scepter of selfishness as every other king's scepter will always be. No, it's a scepter of uprightness. Because verse 7, you have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness, beyond your companions you see the connection there between jesus loving what god loves and hating what god hates why does god hate things because they destroy people's lives that's why god hates those things that's why god hates those behaviors because it ruins people's lives it destroys relationships it steals joy that's why he's against those things why does he love righteousness because it's the path to joy And then look at verse 7, Therefore God your God has anointed you. This is the King of Israel, the Messiah. With the oil of gladness beyond your companions, your robes are all fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. From ivory palaces, stringed instruments make you glad. So there's this celebration of the King and His throne. uh, And every statement here, Every statement here, the robes, the myrrh, the aloes, the cassia, it's all intended to increase our estimation of the king. In other words, it's all intended to highlight the glory of the king. His place is fragrant. It's well decorated. It's musical. It's wonderful. It's right. It's holy. And then in verses 9 through 17, we have the king's wedding. This is really interesting. I think what's happening here is that this psalmist is reflecting on how things worked in the ancient Near East. In the ancient Near East, if the king of Israel were to conquer, let's say, Moab, and if it it, I mean, this is the kind of thing that happened with Solomon, Solomon's troops defeat the Moabites and the Moabite king, he decides what we're going to do is we're going to set up a way to make it so that you don't want to attack me and I don't want to attack you. And the way that we're going to do that is you're going to marry my daughter. And that's going to make it where I don't want to come kill my son-in-law, and my son-in-law doesn't want to come kill me. And besides that, there are going to be grandchildren, and I'm not going to want to defeat them in battle when they join the ranks of your troops. So we're going to establish peace between us by means of this marital alliance. That's what's going on here. That's, that's what the kind of thing that is depicted here in verse 9 and following. Verse 9, daughters of kings, that's foreign kings are among your ladies of honor. At your right hand stands the queen in gold of Ophir. And then look what she's told in verse 10. Hear, O daughter, and consider. Incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house, those foreigners, and the king will desire your beauty. Since he is your lord, the king of Israel, bow to him. So this this king of Israel, the ideal king, the future king from David's line, is being depicted in this psalm with a Gentile bride. It kind of fits what happens with Christ in the church, doesn't it? Largely a Gentile church is the bride of Christ. Verse 12, The people of Tyre will seek your favor with gifts the richest of the people. Verse 13, All glorious is the princess in her chamber, with robes interwoven with gold. The the beauty of the bride enhances the glory of the king. In many colored robes she is led to the king, with her virgin companions following behind her. With joy and gladness they are led along as they enter the palace of the king. Verse 16, In the place of your father shall be your sons. You will make them princes in all the earth. Uh, so, so these descendants, the, the offspring, are going to celebrate the king with her. And then verse 17, I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. I think this is addressed to the king again. Therefore, nations will praise you forever and ever. Do you remember what God said to Abraham? I will give you a great name. Do you remember what he said to David? I will make your name great like the name of the great ones in the earth. Now this psalmist is saying to the future king from David's line, I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations Therefore, nations will praise you forever and ever. Before I conclude, let me just draw your attention to the fact that after this celebration of the king's conquest in verses 1 through 5, the king's throne in verses 6 through 9, and then the king's wedding in verses 9 through 17, which, is, which anticipates the wedding feast of the Lamb in Revelation 19, after this, Psalm 46 talks about the, the earth-giving way and the mountains being moved into the heart of the sea, and a river making glad the city of God. There's no river in the historical Jerusalem. Psalm 46 is an apocalyptic song. It's a psalm about the new Jerusalem. It's a psalm about the end of the present order as the earth gives way and the mountains go into the heart of the sea and the new heaven and new earth result. And then, Psalm 47, Clap your hands, all people. Shout to God with lot. It's like all nations are summoned to praise God for the conquest of the king and the establishment of the new Jerusalem in Psalm 46. We could go on this way. But in closing, I want to go back to that family that I was telling you about and this mother who had disciplined herself in the goodness of God. I I mentioned that they have a a tractor. Um, They had instructed their children that they were not to be near the tractor whenever it was turned on and on a on a recent day their youngest a 6-year-old boy was playing with a frog and he was near the back of the tractor and the frog leaped out of the boy's hands and the boy lunged for the frog and the tractor killed him the tractor he got run over by the tractor and he died and my my brother who's a, a he's not my physical brother you know but he's my brother in christ he he was called to the scene he accompanied them to the hospital then he he went back home with them and he talked about how this mother she got down eye level with each one of her children and she said to them we are not going to question the goodness of god that's the way that spiritual discipline works in our lives we want to set our hope fully on the grace to be revealed to us we want to be so well rehearsed, so disciplined in the glory to be revealed, to which the present suffering is not worth being compared, that when the worst things happen, when the worst things happen, we don't question God's goodness. That doesn't mean that we understand the plan. It doesn't mean that we would have chosen for the plan to be enacted the way it was. But we know He's good. And we trust him. This dear lady, she, my, my friend's wife, sent her a text message to see how she was doing. And she wrote back and she said, If God can cause the tree to sprout on which the Lord Jesus would be crucified, he can give life to the frog that was in my little boy's hands. You see what she's saying? She's saying... The God of the Bible accomplished my redemption and He's in control of everything that happens and I can trust Him. I don't necessarily understand it, but He's he's my Savior. He redeemed me and I will trust Him. We want our hearts to overflow with a pleasing theme when our souls are cast down, when we're urging ourselves to hope in God. Let's pray together. Father, You have given to us a spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father, a spirit who helps us in our weakness as we groan inwardly, waiting eagerly for the redemption of our bodies. And Lord, if there are those here this morning who are considering whether they would whether they would give their lives to Christ, whether they would receive Him as their Lord and believe in Him, Lord, I pray that You would cause the Spirit to give them life. I pray that You would cause them to see what we see, which is that there's nobody better than Jesus, nobody more worthy than Him, and there's no better way to live than making ourselves free will offerings for his name's sake. And Lord, I pray that they would turn from their rebellion and follow the Savior. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would help us to hide it in our hearts that we might not sin against you. In Christ's name, amen.